This tape is a Sunday talk by Joel titled, What Use is Grief? Recorded January 13th, 2002 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So this is a question that was in the question box that Gene mentioned earlier. And it's from Vit. Vit didn't uh, say he didn't want to be mentioned here. So if by default, if you don't say you don't want to be mentioned, I feel free to mention it. <coughs> And here's the question in several parts. Is there a use for the grief of separation and loss? Does the mystic experience profound grief upon the departing of a loved one? If all beings are actually just reflections of the one consciousness itself, what is the purpose of grief, especially if and when it is part of the mystic's experience? So, good question. Does anybody here has never experienced grief in their life? Not one hand grows up. <laughs> Webster's defines grief <clears throat> as intense emotional suffering caused by loss, disaster, misfortune, etc. Now, notice something about this definition. The quality of suffering is built into the meaning of the word. So when we talk about grief, we automatically assume that this is a form of suffering. And in fact, almost all our words, at least in English, that have to do with emotions had a built-in assumption that these emotions are either negative or positive, that the negative emotions are emotions that uh, cause us suffering and positive emotions are emotions that cause us happiness. Or we might even say that the emotions themselves are forms of suffering or forms of happiness. Uh, if you want to include apathy or boredom as an emotion, then that would be sort of the middle of the spectrum. Uh, and in fact, the Buddhists uh, analyze emotions in that way. Uh, they have neutral emotions, so to speak. But basically, in English, when we talk about emotions, we're talking about either emotions that are happy emotions or emotions that we associate with suffering positive and negative. So, if we take this for granted, it follows that happiness means never experiencing any negative emotion. Only positive emotions. So that's our idea of happiness. And then, a lot of spiritual seekers, based on this assumption, assume that enlightenment means eliminating all negative emotions and only experiencing positive emotions. So when I get enlightened, I'm never going to feel sorrow, sadness, anger, all these negative emotions. I'm only going to feel joy and peace and contentment and things like that. But is this true? Is this assumption, this underlying dualistic assumption about emotions true? So the first thing I want to do is explore this a little bit. If it is true, then real abiding happiness is impossible. We can never attain it. Because not only are the things that we grasp onto that evoke <clears throat> positive emotions in us themselves impermanent, so if you go out and buy a new sports car and that causes you happiness, joy, 
and then the sports car gets a ding in it and starts to rust and so forth, and then you experience suffering. Those things that evoke these emotions themselves are impermanent, but the emotions themselves are impermanent. In fact, the etymological root of emotion is the same as to move. That's what emotion means. It moves. It's constantly moving. And in fact, it would be impossible to hold one emotional state forever. And then there's also an interesting thing because if we try to hold an emotional state or if a situation keeps evoking the emotion, the emotion, the emotion, a funny thing happens because we get in a situation we might compare in physics to like a standing wave, the positive emotion turns into a negative emotion. Have you ever experienced this like elation? Oh, you're so elated by something. And then you keep being elated and you start to get exhausted. It's too much. You just, you want to let it go. You want to sleep. You want to get away from it. Has anyone had that experience? Yeah. Uh, humor. <clears throat> Almost everybody likes humor. A good joke. Amusing situations. But after a while, you know, jokes get tiresome. <laughs> I mean, if somebody's constantly just doing nothing but telling jokes, telling jokes, you know. I mean, after you get tired of laughing. Mm -hmm. When I was a, a teenager, early teens, and I had uh, had some Christian influence, and I was questioning the truth of these doctrines, Christian doctrines, and one of the things that struck me was that the whole point of Christianity, as I understood it at that time, was you're a good little boy, and then you die and you go to heaven, and then you're going to be happy forever. But the descriptions I read of heaven were you sit around and you play harps or you praise God or something like that for all eternity. <laughs> and at 13, 12 and 13, I began to think, you know, this isn't necessarily happiness. It's going to get kind of boring after the first two millenniums or so, you know? So uh, this whole idea that, uh, that we can... Uh, somehow attain some emotional state, no matter how positive, and hang on to it forever and be happy is not going to work. It's just impossible. That's just not the way emotions are. We could call this the yin and yang of emotion. You know, this the, like the yin and yang in the in the Chinese system. This symbol of the light turns into the dark, the dark turns into the light, and it's constantly moving, constantly moving. Our emotions are constantly moving. We can't grab on to one set of emotions and hold them forever. So if this is true, that uh, happiness depends on maintaining a certain emotional state, then we can never really be permanently happy. Then we just cycle through happiness and unhappiness, happiness, unhappiness, and so forth. So then the question is, is there a kind of happiness that does not depend on whether we are experiencing negative or positive emotions. Is there a kind of happiness that transcends but embraces all emotions? So that you would be happy no matter what you were experiencing. If that is possible, then permanent abiding happiness is possible. So, let's see if we can get some hints of what this might be like from our own ordinary experience. And there are ways we can start to see how this might be possible. And the first one is by looking at our reactions to 
entertainment, sports, arts, things like that. These curious human activities that seem not to have much to do with our survival. They seem almost superfluous, especially from a materialist point of view of life, you know, that life is all about the survival of fittest and all that. Why do we spend so much time engaged in these more or less superfluous activities? What is the key there? Well, let's look uh, at what happens in a sporting event, for instance. In a sporting event, we get excited and happy when our team wins, and we get down and depressed when our team loses. But your team can't win all the time. Your team has to lose sometimes. Otherwise, you wouldn't enjoy it. You know, if you watch a a game and your team gets ahead, let's say, football, and your team scores six touchdowns in the first quarter, you know that the the game's going to be boring. Turn it off. This is why, for instance, the Ducks don't play Churchill High. (laughs) They'll wipe them out every time. Nobody wants to go see that game. You see what I'm talking about here? If we look at music... We see, oh, individual tunes evoke a whole range of emotions, negative as well as positive. So they're sad tunes, they're nostalgic tunes, and then they're happy tunes and joyful tunes and upbeat tunes, you know. Some tunes even are humorous. So we see music is not all about just evoking one emotion. And if you go to a concert, or you listen to an album, a concert is designed to take you through a range of emotions. Except for maybe heavy metal or something. But uh, most most concerts for mature people, uh, you know, there's there's a change-up. You get a happy, joyful, driving tune, then you get a sad ballad, you know, then maybe you get something humorous. It's, It's planned that way. So it covers the whole spectrum. The, the point of the music is to arouse uh, lots of emotions in us, negative as well as positive, we call negative. If we go to a movie or a play, it's the same thing. I used to work in the movie business, and as I've said before, we used to have an expression about what drama is. What is the task of the dramatist? And it's to orchestrate the emotions of the audience. And that's why if you go to a good movie, it's not just one note. Do you know what I mean? You're going to experience a a variety of emotions. Some of them very negative, like fear. I mean, what we call very negative. And we enjoy this. And the proof that we enjoy this is we spend our hard-earned money for the opportunity to experience it. That's why movies like uh, Titanic, which ends, you know, in a big sob scene and what's his name, sinks below the ocean and (laughs) she's hanging on and all that. I mean, you know, that movie was one of the biggest money makers uh, in history. Jurassic Park made a fortune. It's based on terror. (laughs) There's dinosaurs chasing people, you know, and eating them up and whatnot and running and hiding. It was so successful, they made Son of Jurassic Park and Jurassic Park 3, 4, it's like a dynasty, you know? Now, it's very interesting to notice something about Jurassic Park, because um, it was made by Steven Spielberg, the first one, 
anyway. And Steven Spielberg has been a tremendously successful filmmaker. People really enjoy his films. And one of the reasons is, if you go to his films, they may not be profound art, but he manages to evoke a whole range of emotions within the film. So in Jurassic Park, if any of you ever uh, saw the, at least the original one, in, uh, in this, what is essentially a uh, terror film, a sign of your wise terror. There are also these whimsical scenes. You remember the kids out with the brontosauruses uh, munching on the trees and this sense of wonder and so forth. And then he works in humor. In one movie, he, he will uh, arouse a whole range of emotions. That's why his horror movies are much more successful than these cheap grade B, you know, massacre them with a chainsaw movies, which only have one note, you know, just horror. So the thing is here, we pay good money to experience a whole range of emotions, not just the positive ones. Now, there's something else to notice about sporting events and music and art and drama and stuff like that. And that is, we enjoy it because it's not directly happening to me. It's happening to someone else. It's happening to the kids on the screen in Jurassic Park. They're being chased around. We can identify with them, and we, we better identify with them, otherwise it's a boring movie. But we know it's not really happening to me. The same with our, our team, our football team, our basketball team. Or whatever. We identify with the players there. And the same with the music. It's, we identify with the composer, the artist, and so forth. But it's not when the artist is singing about uh, some tragedy. You know, it's, it's not mine. I'm not in the middle of it here. So maybe there's a clue there about under what circumstances we enjoy the whole range of emotions. Now, we can also uh, get uh, more hints of this by looking at folk wisdom. Uh, for instance, there's an old adage, suffering builds character. You ever heard that? Yeah, I see so many people rolling their eyes. That's very interesting. <laughs> and we look at cultures around the world, we find, for instance, initiation rites uh, in many cultures are often painful and frightening. They, uh, they involve the experience of what we would call negative emotions. And somehow those cultures think that this is important. It's not something to be avoided. It's something actually to be faced here. In the old days, anyway, uh, parents wanted their children to work hard so that they would appreciate the good things in life. Even wealthy parents who would give their kids everything uh, didn't necessarily do that. I remember reading a, a story, and I think it was about the woman who was uh, editor of the Washington Post for so many years and turned it into a great newspaper. Does anybody remember her name? What? Graham. Graham, right. Okay. I kept thinking Emily Post, and I knew that wasn't right. I mean, Washington Post, Emily Post. I believe it was her who told the story about growing up. She grew up in a very wealthy family with servants and all that. And one day a week was the servants' days off. They got all the servants left, and the family had to make their own meals, and make their own beds and clean up after themselves. This was a plan on the part of the parents so that the kids could understand how normal people live and not just think the whole world was you know, full of servants. So we see there's a value, at least from the parents' point of view, in having kids experience some of these negative emotions, the struggle, the pain, 
the fear, whatever involved. And actually, young people themselves often crave that. They crave adventure and uh, risk and hardship. Maybe that's why that young walker went off to fight with the Taliban. He grew up in Marin County, you know, he has it all. It wasn't satisfying to him. That was part of why when I was a young man, I read Jack Kerouac, you know, hitchhiking around the country, and I went off hitchhiking around the country. And I had to sleep on frozen ground and go hungry and things like that. But to me, it was all, even though at the moment it wasn't pleasant, but it was all part of the adventure. You know, it's not much of an adventure if there are no risks and there are no hardships. So it's interesting that uh, young people do that. And then often adults, particularly successful adults, uh, get to uh, midlife. And they have a midlife crisis. And suddenly everything's too easy for them. There's no challenge. Is this what life is all about? Sometimes they do crazy things uh, just that create a lot of turmoil and negative emotions. So in all these situations, we see that there is actually a kind of hunger, a thirst, not just to experience pleasant, nice emotions. We want something more. We want the whole range. And there's also something else to notice about this. Unlike sports and entertainments and whatever, when we are in the midst of experiencing the unpleasant emotion, we don't like it because it is happening to me. We feel it as suffering. Do you see what I mean? We might know intellectually, oh yes, this is good, it builds my character, whatever, but when you're there sleeping on the hard, freezing ground, you are suffering. Later, you'll look back on it, you'll see it as all part of a great adventure, and you'll have some appreciation of it. And that maybe is the key here. When we are not experiencing it, or when we are not associating ourselves as being in the middle of the experience, as in art or sports and so forth, we can enjoy it as it's happening. We can enjoy the fear that arises as the dinosaur, you know, jumps out from behind the closet. When I am involved, though, when it's happening to me, when I am the one that the dinosaur is jumping out at, I suffer. So, maybe suffering doesn't have so much to do with the emotion you're experiencing, but has to do with whether there's an I in there or not. And in fact, this is exactly what mystics say. They say, in fact, there is no such thing as an I, a self. That that is a delusion, and that that delusion is at the root of our suffering. We think there's some I in here, some I that we have to defend, some I that can get things and avoid things and so forth. So it sets up this whole strategy of grasping after those things that will give us the positive feelings and pushing away and avoiding those things that will uh, give us the negative feelings. And since that can't be done, it's a whole futile game we're playing. But what would happen if there were no I there? And that's what a mystical path is about. So from a mystic's point of view, the end of suffering is not the elimination of any emotion. It's the realization that there is no one in there experiencing the emotion. There's no victim of these emotions. 
This is what uh, the Sufi, Javad Nurbakash, says. And he speaks from mystics of all traditions. For most people, happiness results from the attainment of desire or the avoidance of unpleasantness. For the Sufi, however, true happiness comes from giving up the self. As long as you are you, you will be miserable and impoverished. Why? Because you'll always be experiencing some negative emotion which will cause you suffering. So, we could say there are two ways to look at emotion, or two ways to experience emotion, really. To experience it under delusion, when we think there's an I in here, that this is happening to me. And to experience it as liberated emotion, just energy. That is happening, but not happening to some me. So we might say that's an enlightened experience of emotion. So this is uh, just a background here to answer Vip's question, a long background, but necessary because you see when Vip asks, do mystics experience grief? It's very uh, hard to communicate how can you experience grief without suffering? It's not that mystics don't experience grief, it's just that the grief doesn't cause them suffering. But let's go back to uh, the first part of Phipps' question, that is, is there a use for grief? Is there a use for grief under delusion? And then we'll talk about, is there a use for grief after delusion ends? So let's begin with a use for grief under delusion. Uh, It's really part of the larger question of, is there a use for suffering on the path? And in fact, there is use for suffering. In fact, it's a key to have suffering. Nobody would go on a mystical path if they didn't suffer. It's one of the major motivators. In the Hindu tradition, the Hindu cosmology, uh, you know, people reincarnate and they go to various realms. Uh, There's six of them ranging from the uh, hell realms, the deepest hell realms, to the god realms. But only the human realm, which is about in the middle, only beings in the human realm can get enlightened. Beings in the hell realms, the lower realms, there's so much suffering and there's so little intelligence, they can't make use of it, they just suffer. Beings in the God realms can't get enlightened because they're not motivated. You know, they're sitting around there drinking their ambrosia and doing hanky-panky and this and that, and uh, they have no reason to go on a spiritual path. So suffering in the Hindu tradition is key. It's a key motivator. And most people, I think, uh, a major factor in why they go on the spiritual path is because they have suffering. And notice that Webster's uh, definition defined grief as intense suffering. Well, the more intense your suffering, oddly enough, the more motivated you will probably be. So grief can be an intense motivator. And it's true. Many people begin a spiritual path uh, out of a sense of major loss of something. A person, uh, sometimes it's a, a loss not of a, a, another person, but uh, facing a, a, a critical illness, which brings up the loss of the body, you know. But these kinds of events, these kinds of crises in our lives that often involve grief, are very important on motivating people on a spiritual path. 
One example is Milarepa, who was a great Tibetan master, who ended up being a great Tibetan master. We always have to remember that, you know. These people didn't start out being great Tibetan masters or great any kind of masters. They started out just like you or me. They started out being poor, suffering, deluded beings. <laughs> and he had started on a spiritual path, a Buddhist path, but he really wasn't taking it very seriously. And then his family got massacred, wiped out by bandits or something. I've forgotten exactly the details of the story. Only the sister was spared. She came to tell him. And he was just overwhelmed. I mean, his whole family it would be like your family got uh, you know, uh, caught in the World Trade Center on September 11th, just all wiped out. And that's what convinced them to really take his Buddhism seriously. It drove home the teaching, the central teaching of Buddhism, all life is impermanent. There's no happiness to be found in, in this impermanence. And so it was a concrete, powerful example to him. This is true. Because we read these teachings, you know, and we have a secret distance from them. Oh, yes, it's true for other people, but I'm somehow going to, you know, slip through. I'm not going to experience any of these things. I'm going to, you know, have a nice, happy life, and, you know, somewhere around 90, 95, I'll die in my sleep in my bed, and I won't even know it. Everything will be fine. <laughs> very few people have that. And I was going to say, very few people are lucky enough, but maybe that isn't lucky. From a mystic's point of view, that isn't necessarily lucky, see? To understand what reality is really about earlier is better. And that means having this kind of experience, this kind of experiential understanding of what life is about. The other thing about uh, grief is once you're on a path, grief is an opportunity for insight into the teachings. It's a, a similar thing here. You directly experience what is being taught. So, for instance, Ananda Moyama, I mentioned earlier, the Hindu mystic from the last century, writes, Happiness that depends on anything or anyone turns into sorrow when that particular thing or person is out of reach. Everything in this world is transitory, so also worldly happiness. It comes, and the next moment it is gone. If permanent abiding happiness is to be found, that which is the eternal will have to be realized. Now, when you experience this, someone you love particularly, someone you love strongly, someone you really attach to, dies or goes away or whatever, then you feel grief, big-time grief, you understand this teaching in a big-time way. It's an opportunity for it really to sink home. And on the path in general, experiences of suffering, experiences of loss, are very valuable. It is in those moments that our attachments come to light, and the self that is behind the attachment comes to light, where we can see it. When you're experiencing profound grief, as Vip writes, you have a profound sense of self and of attachment. There's no question in your mind, well, what is an attachment? Am I attached uh, to, the, to material things or not? You know, people ask themselves, well, am I really attached to this candy or am I just a little preference that I enjoy? Well, when somebody you love is taken from you, there's no question about it. This is a good thing. You see your attachment directly. And you see that self, that sense of self. You experience it. You can look at it then. Is there really something there or not? So it's, again, an opportunity to, for inquiry, for investigation. 
when grief becomes really overwhelming, and of course the first thing we want to do is uh, you know, get rid of it, and if we find ourselves trying to get rid of it and we can't, another kind of opportunity opens up from a spiritual perspective. We try and try and we're just overwhelmed. We realize it's bigger than us and often that can force us to open ourselves to a guidance that is beyond ourselves, a grace that is beyond ourselves. This is in particularly in the theistic traditions. This is the point where you get to say, Lord, I just can't do it anymore. Help me. You're opening yourself up to something beyond that ego self you think you are. And very often, people on a spiritual path, their first glimpse of the divine, of something transcendent to that little ego self, comes in a moment of crisis like that. There's a saying, man's extremity is God's opportunity. Here's a specific example of that. This is uh, Simone Weil, who she was a great Christian mystic of the last century, 20th century, and she describes her first encounter with the divine, and she was not brought up uh, in any kind of religion. Uh, she was brought up by atheists, basically, and she'd been interested in radical politics in the 30s, and she'd gone to Spain and fought in the Spanish Civil War and things like that. So she had no prior background in any kind of uh, religious training. She says, In a moment of intense suffering, when I was forcing myself to love, I felt without being in any way prepared for it, for I had never read the mystical writers, a presence more powerful, more certain, more real than that of any human being, though inaccessible to the senses and the imagination. So it was in this moment of intense suffering that she had this direct experience of the divine. That's not yet full realization. But that's the other flip side of the coin of seeing that it's impossible to attain happiness in this world of impermanence. That's the stick. And then the carrot is you start to get glimpses. There is something beyond this. Very important on a spiritual path. Then finally, and this is kind of the hardest thing to get, if we give our heart away completely to something or someone, completely, then when we lose that thing or that person or that one, our heart breaks completely. Breaks open completely. And this is really crucial on a spiritual path. You know, normally when we experience heartbreak, grief, uh, normally in our love, before even we get to that point, we don't give our heart away completely. We lend it. We lend it, and then we spend the relationship defending it. And then when it breaks, the first thing we want to do is mend it. Uh, under delusion, when we make these assumptions about what reality is, it's perfectly logical. And it seems totally counterintuitive to just let the heart break. To give it away to begin with completely and then just let it break. But the heart, and I'm, heart has several meanings in mystical literature, so don't, uh, you have to read the context. The way I'm using it here, the heart is the emotional core of self, the delusion of self, so to speak. 
There's the, there's the, you might say, the intellectual aspect that's always thinking, I, planning, I'm going to get this, I want that, and so forth. The heart is what wants or doesn't want. And the heart is always hoping that it can get what it wants. And that's why when we our hearts break, we, we want to mend them, we want to heal them, put it back together, and go on with our strategy of trying to get what we want. So this person broke our heart, but someday we'll find Mr. or Mrs. Wright and everything will be hunky-dory and we'll die in bed at 90, you know. (laughs) (laughs) If you let your heart break open completely and stop trying to mend it, it, it means you're releasing all attachment. You're letting go. In particular, you're letting go of the hope that any of this is ever going to work. This whole strategy of uh, getting what you want and avoiding what you don't want. You quit struggling. You quit making any effort. And when all struggle ceases, I mean all struggles, struggles we don't even realize, struggles that go on at almost the subconscious level, when all that ceases... The illusion or delusion of self dies. Because the delusion of self is kept in place by this struggle. It is this struggle. In the East, they compare this to a firebrand, but uh, I think uh, sparklers, same idea, but we're familiar in this country with sparklers. You know, on the 4th of July, you light a sparkler. Everybody knows about sparklers. I don't have to have them anymore. When I was a kid, they do. Sure. When I was a kid, we used to, in the middle of the night, you know, you have to do this at night, you spin them around, and you create this sense of a a circle in the air. And if you do it properly, you know, steadily and at the right speed, really, it looks like there's this ring of fire hanging in the air that you could almost grab it and take it and go home and hang it on your wall. You know, it looks very pretty, you know. It'd be nice over here, fill this space, hang on fire. (laughs) But of course it isn't, it's an illusion. It's an illusion created by this activity. If the hand stops, the illusion vanishes. And if we let our hearts break completely, and we give up the struggle, and we give up the hope, and we give up all those ideas and imaginations and all that, let them all just die, then the illusion disappears and it's like lifting a veil. There's the truth. There's reality. Staring us in the face, as it's been staring us in the face all along, but we didn't see it through the illusion. So grief, profound grief, can be the opening to a profound realization. And in fact, this is how the bhakti path, the path of devotion, which is the other wing of the bird of spiritual uh, practice. The other side is inquiry, wisdom. But this is the key to how the bhakti path works. A lot of people think the path of devotion, the bhakti path, is going to be all bliss and positive emotions. I'll go on the bhakti path and I'll chant and I'll praise Krishna and I'll feel ecstasy and bliss and all I don't want to do all that thinking and all that inquiry and all that. A very mistaken idea of the bhakti path. There are those experiences. But the most important thing, really, is the negative experiences. This is why the psalmist uh, wrote, the psalms, you know, from the Bible, 
The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Interesting. You know, we read these things in the Bible, these, especially in modern Christianity and modern Judaism. We don't like these things. You know, we, we try to clean it up. Wow, what does that mean? Here's uh, how a uh, great bhakti, Mirabai, one of the most famous of the Hindu bhaktis, describes what the path of love is like. She says, Don't mention the name of love, my simple-minded companions. If you want to offer love, Be prepared to cut off your head and sit on it. Be like the moth which circles the lamp and offers its body. Be like the deer which on hearing the horn offers its head to the hunter. Be like the fish which yields up its life when separated from the sea. Mira's Lord is the courtly Krishna. She says, offer your heart to those lotus feet. Because that's where the bhakti path leads to a heart that is totally broken open, has nothing left of its own, has no hope for itself anymore, is totally surrendered to the divine. What you fall in love with, the beloved, is some form of the divine. It's not the ultimate reality, and the the ultimate reality which is beyond subject and object, uh, self and world, I and other, but some form in which the divine appears to you. It might be a form, a subtle form, like just a presence, as Simone Wilde described. It might be in the form of a teacher. That's very uh, traditional in uh, Hinduism. The guru is the incarnation of the divine. For Christians, Jesus is an incarnation. It could happen with a human being, a human lover. And you can, it's unusual, but it happens, and you can read my book, because uh, a, a human being served that function for me. So if you are engaged in some profound love affair and you experience profound grief, uh, you don't necessarily have to wait until you're on a spiritual path and uh, fall in love with the divine, especially if that that doesn't mean anything to you. The import here is how much you gave your heart away to begin with. If you gave it all away, and then how profound the grief is. So I think uh, Rumi, great Sufi poet, sums up the use of grief on a spiritual path very beautifully when he writes, Should heartache enter your mind and ambush your joy, yet it prepares the way for happiness. Quickly it sweeps all others out of the house so that joy may come to you from the source of good. It shakes the yellow leaves from the branches of the heart so that fresh leaves may grow continuously. It pulls up the root of old happiness so that a new ecstasy may stroll in from yonder. So that's how grief serves us on a spiritual path. Uh, How we can start to look at grief and other forms of suffering instead of in a negative light as something terrible happening to us to turn around and uh, welcome it and see what it has to teach us. Really, that's what it is. Grief is our teacher. Now, what about the other part of Vip's question? Do mystics experience grief? And again, as I said earlier, it depends on how we're using the word grief. If we're defining it exactly like Webster's is defining it, we say no. But that's misleading because that makes you think, well, mystics never experience that quality of energy that is in grief. 
Mystics do experience grief, but there's no suffering in it. And they don't necessarily experience grief in the traditional uh, situations. So, for instance, my teacher, Dr. Uh, Franklin Merrill Wolf, uh, about five years before I met him, his second wife, who had been married to, I don't know, about 10 years, died. He was already in his uh, 80s. And he experienced tremendous grief. Deep, profound grief. In uh, my life, since my awakening, my mother's died, my father's died, my brother's died, uh, my dog companion of 13 years died, and a couple of cats. I don't mean to dismiss the cats, I love the cats too. And I think of, uh, uh, of all of them, I experienced the most grief over my dog's death. Uh, no, no grief over my mother's death. Not because I didn't love my mother. It all had to do with the circumstances under which these various beings died. My mother's death was actually quite glorious. She just decided one day, she was 93 years old, she just decided she was sick of life. And her favorite restaurant, the, had the food had gone downhill, that was the last one. <laughs> <laughs> see? Ah, see? No, that's my reaction She checked herself in the hospital and said to the doctor, I'm ready to die. I want to see what's on the other side. And she did. She died within a day or two. So, you know, you see, sometimes because we are conditioned, we think in that kind of situation, I should be feeling grief. And we don't feel grief, we start feeling guilty. See, so this is all the story of I, what I should be doing, da-da-da-da-da. So, uh, a mystic uh, can experience grief, but not necessarily, and not necessarily in the same circumstances that other people experience grief. How is it possible to experience the emotion we call grief and not suffer? And again, this is hard to communicate, but let's, uh, let's try to take a stab at it. All emotions, if you examine them, are rooted in love. So negative emotions are actually rooted in love. You feel sad when you lose something you love. You feel grief when you lose something you love. You feel angry or jealous when something you love is taken from you. We don't feel sad when something is taken from us that we didn't love, that we didn't care about. We don't get angry. I kid Jennifer sometimes. Uh, she's carrying some junk around in the back of her truck, you know, eventually to take it to the dump or something. And we'll park downtown. I'll say, aren't you worried about, you know, having the stuff stolen out of the back of your truck? <laughs> See, it's a joke because obviously she doesn't love her. She could care less. In fact, she hoped somebody would take it and save her a trip to the dump. <laughs> so it's not that somebody takes something from us that causes the problem. They take what we love. So all these emotions are actually rooted in love. They are expressing love. What would happen if there was the realization that grief, sorrow, anger, all that are all expressions of love, fundamentally? We love to feel love. Do you see what I'm talking about? It's like the difference is, if 
if I reach out my hand, that's like an emotion going out. If I reach out my hand to grab something, or am I reaching out my hand to give something? It's the same emotion of reaching out. The reaching out to give is always happy in that transcendent sense. I may be giving you grief. That's not a good choice of words in our language. Don't give me no grief. But I may be sharing my grief. And it's very interesting about my teacher, Dr. Wolf, because he had this profound grief and he shared it with everybody. Whenever he was invited to give a talk, that's what he would talk about. He talked about it without any reserve, without any self-consciousness. It was just remarkable about how transparent he was to this grief. The broken heart is an open heart and it doesn't hold anything back. Sadness, grief, whatever. And that's really what life is about. And uh, we can only talk about this in analogy. And again, Rumi, I think, has one of the most beautiful analogies. We can think of these body minds as musical instruments. Rumi called them reed, like a reed that you blow through. We are the musical instruments in which the divine expresses infinite, endless forms of love. And that's our function, just to be that musical instrument. And if we understand that, we see the perfection of the world is like the perfection of a great movie. It's not because there are no negative emotions or quote, positive emotions. It's like the perfection of a great concert. It's because the music is played so beautifully, regardless of whether it's sad or joyful music, or humorous or nostalgic or anything in between. And the purpose of that, our purpose is to love it. That's the purpose of art, isn't it? Mm -hmm. We love it. We love sports. We love art. We love music. It doesn't have any other purpose. It's just love. To experience the love and to love to experience the love. And this is the happiness that transcends and embraces all shades of emotion that we could possibly experience. And this is the happiness in which there is no suffering. There is sadness. There can even be anger and things like that, but there is no suffering. Because it's like coming out of a wonderful concert and you just say, wow. And you've experienced everything in that concert and all you can say is, wow. So, Vip, where is he? Was that helpful? That was uh, superb. <laughs> Any uh, questions? Yes. Yeah, what comes to my mind is depression because is, I don't, is what depression. Uh huh. Uh, could you substitute the word depression for grief in terms of a a non mystic who suffers? Is mm. it grief? Good, good question. And depression is interesting. And I, I want to then let me add some refinements. In my experience, anyway, some emotions. Uh, do disappear after enlightenment, uh, or they're just not, they don't arise anymore. I call them echo emotions, like guilt. 
and depression. Uh, they, are, they are sort of um, echoes of true emotions. That's, I don't know how else to uh, even to describe it. Like meta-emotions. Yeah, something like that. In other words, uh, are, they're like, it's like painting. They're like primary colors, and then we mix all the emotions out of the primary colors. But then you might, under weird, distorted light, you might get phony highlights that, don't, that really aren't there. Do you know what I mean? And so when the distortion disappears, those highlights disappear. <clears throat> now, depression, depression is quite mysterious. It, it, it may be some forms of depression are really rooted in a, a biological problem. And I do recommend people, you know, uh, in certain severe cases, go take Prozac or whatever. Especially if the depression is so deep that you can't even do your spiritual practice. And the first thing to do is to get to the place where you can do some spiritual practice. But some depression is actually an attempt to not feel emotion. It's a chronic attempt not to feel those negative emotions. And when we don't feel negative emotions, we can't feel positive emotions either. You see what I mean? Because they don't really come divided this way. That's a false perception of them, this dualistic perception. And one of the keys about that is when people start, uh, start to stop being depressed, Often, a lot of negative emotion arises, surprisingly. Anger, fear, it's like layers. And then you realize the depression has been holding the lid on this. You see what I mean? And it feels like depression because you, you, you just feel down. You don't feel anything. You can't feel joy. If you're not going to allow yourself to feel anger, you can't feel joy. So uh, I think that, again, depression is a, uh, an added complexity that comes from our delusion and our misperception of things. I have one more question yes. along this line, which is, would a mystic who had biological uh, biological depression symptoms, I don't know what you call it, come up, would they take Prozac or some kind of drug to try to prevent it from happening? Or uh, Good question. I can speak from experience. Uh, I used to have mild, and I stress mild, um, uh, chronic kinds of periods of what I used to call depression, or I used to call it my black moods. So maybe once or twice a year, I'd fall into, for three or four weeks, a black mood. And over time, I got to recognize that as an adult, you know, and I'd just say, well, this is the black mood, and it'll pass after a while, and I just sort of lived with it. But I suffered from it. I felt like it was something negative that I had to come out of and all that. That rhythm is still in my life. But I don't even call, I wouldn't even call it a black mood or anything. It's just some, uh, some periods, I'm more inward turned and than outward, you know what I mean? It's like a bear hibernating, I mean, to use, you know. And I think this is probably natural in most people's lives, you know. And in our society, we are pathologically out there. I mean, if you're not out there all the time and awake all the time and doing, 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 something's wrong with you. Give them Prozac. But, you know, uh, other cultures have not viewed life like that. So my short answer is what I thought was unnatural and therefore made judgments about now seems completely natural to me. Now, I don't know if that would be the case in more so very severe forms of depression, particularly what's now called bipolar and things like that. So, <clears throat> yes? Um, I'm a little bit confused about what you said at the beginning. Uh, you said that people, uh, if we, for example, if you keep telling jokes, we'll get tired and it's exhausting the same way with being elated oh. for too long. And on the other hand, 
if a person is feeling intense grief for a long time, that is also exhausting. And it, but just from personal experience, it doesn't flip over into happiness. Why is it that that seems to be a persistent? I think, uh, I think you're right. I think usually negative emotions we don't feel usually a flip over, but they do ultimately pass. But there are some situations where we do see a negative emotions flip over. How many of you have been in a situation where you're going on vacation and everything starts to go wrong? And you get more and more upset and more and more angry. And finally, you say, what, what more could go wrong? And something else goes wrong and everybody breaks out laughing. So we do have experiences where uh, it does turn around. And even within uh, sorrow and grief. Well, I'll give you one example from my uh, experience. Before my mother actually died, about a year or so before, she broke her hip and she was in the hospital. And my brother and I flew down there. And uh, every day we would show up at the hospital. And every day the doctor would say the opposite of what we said the day before. So we'd show up and the doctor would say, we'd say, how is she doing? And he'd say, oh, she's doing wonderful. Maybe she can go home this afternoon or tomorrow. We'd go see her, and she'd be in bed saying, I'm dying, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> uh, then we'd go back, you know, spend some time with her stuff. Then we'd come back the next day, the doctor said, no, no, very bad, very bad. We'd go see mother, oh, yeah, I'm ready to go home, I think, you know. <laughs> Up and down like this, right? So my brother, who <clears throat> was not in the best of health, older than I was, after about six or seven days, this was really getting him very uptight, stressed out, you know. So I said, Gene, let's, let's go down to the local bar and just have some, you know, margaritas and stuff. So we started drinking, and I said, Gene, you know what we got to do? We got to go tell Mother tomorrow. I said, all right, Mother, make up your mind. You're either going to drop dead or you're going to get back. He started laughing and laughing, you know. Now, I was having fun, but I was doing this purposely. Exactly that, trying to get that emotion moving so he wouldn't just be like this. So here was a situation where, uh, and we have expressions for this, black humor comes in, you know. So what was sorrow and painful or whatever becomes funny and humorous. One of the skills on a path, and it continues uh, after enlightenment, is how do we play the emotion, like playing musical instruments, with each other. Do you know what I mean? Somebody's down or whatever, you know. Do we have a range of responses that, uh, not just one response that always has to be for this situation? And can we be open and free to dance in that? Wow. Well, if there are no other questions, Wesley has something. Uh. I'd like to I'd like to declare that today excuse me that today is library day. Would that be alright for everybody? Yeah. Yay! We have the, the head librarian, the chief stand up the library. Stand up so they can see you.